You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Okay, the talk that I'm giving is entitled, No Compromise. When I first devised the talk, though, I thought that I might call the talk, um, here we go, let's try and bring this up on the screen. There we are, No Compromise. I thought I might call it, No Empty Words. This is a question which is not a scientific question at all. Those people who are as old as me or older may have some idea why I might have wanted to call this talk No Empty Words. I might have to give you a clue. It's a, uh, The answer is a musical answer. Those people who were Christians in the late 1970s, can you think of any Christian music around then that might give you a clue why this talk could have been called No Empty Words? If you can't think of one yet, no hands go up, I might have to give you another clue. I'll give you another clue. Keith Green. Now do you know? Yes, he wrote, uh, he had a song, didn't he? Uh, it was actually called Make My Life a Prayer for You. Make my life a prayer to you. I want to do what you want me to. No empty words, no white lies, no token prayers, no compromise. Okay, I love that song. And I love the attitude that goes with it. There should be no compromise, but I like to put it in the words of Keith Green's songs because Keith Green was a gentle man, wasn't he? He was not a man who'd be trying to hammer someone over the head. And when I say that we should have no compromise in our theology, I'm not trying to say that we should bash them around both sides of the head with the Bible. I'm saying that quietly, quietly, with grace, with love, and with winsomeness, but also with firmness, we should acknowledge the truth of Scripture. And stick to that. Okay? There, I finished the talk in one minute. <laughs> okay, let's put that into some context. Well, I've quoted this verse several times. Every word of God is pure. He's a shield to those who trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. That's why I spent some time this morning giving you an age of the earth calculation. And I want to quickly remind you of that in just a couple of minutes, just so that you know where I'm coming from, so that you can understand why uh, there is to be no compromise on these things. Okay, I'm, I'm telling you that our model is based on the idea that the genealogies of Genesis 5 and Genesis 11 can have no gaps. Now, I tried to explain to you earlier why I believe they have no gaps. I'm not going to repeat that. But uh, there were reasons why I told you that I thought there were no gaps there. But what I did do was I then added up all the various numbers from Genesis chapter 5, uh, where so-and-so begat so-and-so at such-and-such an age, 
And eventually we worked out that the flood came when Noah was 600 years old. Therefore, the flood would have come at 1,656 years after creation. Then on the next screen, I went through Genesis 11 and showed you that eventually Abraham was born when Terah was 130 years old. Uh, that's 2,008 years, therefore, after creation. And Abraham left Haran, an important event, at the age of 75 when uh, in the year 2083 after creation. Uh, and then I went on to show you that, therefore, the Israelites were in Egypt for 430 years. We talked about the disagreements we might have on that and how it doesn't really alter the point, uh, how uh, the uh, temple must have been built 2,992. Uh, the kingdom must have been divided 3,029 and therefore Jerusalem destroyed 390 years later, 3,419 years after creation. I also told you then, if anyone's come in here who uh, wasn't here this morning, I told you don't try and scribble those figures down past, uh, fast. They are there in my, the back of my book, um, The Six Days of Genesis. And also, you can get, you can actually download them for free, which I should have mentioned this morning, from the Mount St. Helens website. You can get these tables, charts that I drew up, uh, including those graphs that I drew of the decaying ages of the patriarchs. You can download those. You go to the free stuff section on the Mount St. Helens Creation Center website, and you can download them all for free. So you don't need to try and sort of struggle to um, um, scribble these things down. You just need to put down MSH Creation Center. .org, and you'll get them. Based on that, I told you that I thought that creation must have happened 4003, but I'm not saying it's absolutely that year. I'm not saying that creation was absolutely 6,023 years ago. I've told you that we can disagree over the exodus, which might add another 215 years on. I've told you that we, that there's an error on each individual entry because there's up to 12 months, 11, uh, you know, 364 days possible variation on each entry. Uh, so that can add up probably at least 100 years, maybe more. You can even add some figures in from the Septuagint, which I think has got inflated figures. I think it's incorrect. But even if you did that, it's only adding just a few more hundred years. So there are differences. Archbishop James Usher worked out, he thought that the earth was created in 4004 BC. Isaac Newton got the uh, date about 3990-something BC. He checked Archbishop Usher's calculations and he thought most of them were correct. So he was a scientist, remember? You know the man who had an apple falling on his head so he discovered the rainbow? And... Uh, <laughs> And then because people were having too much fun, he invented calculus to spoil their fun. Okay, that's uh, Isaac Newton. Um, so that's um, there are other people who've done other calculations, and they do vary a bit. By the way, some people criticize, this is a bunny trail that I think is important, but some people criticize Archbishop James Usher saying, well, he actually went to the extent of saying that God created the world at 6 p.m., on October the 22nd in the year 4004 BC. And it's true he did. He was not, however, when he said that, expecting you to uh, absolutely follow that. He was saying that's approximately then. But why would he say such an, ex such an important time as that and get it so exact? Because in the Hebrew calendar, the days began at approximately 6 p.m. Why? Because they go from sunset to sunset, don't they? 
they didn't use midnight as their reference. So he was actually looking at the day which we would think was October 23rd, 4004 BC. Um, That's the the year he was looking at, the date he was looking at, but he said it's 6 p.m. the night before because that's when the day started because 6 p.m. would have been approximately sunset in Israel at that time. Why October the 23rd then? That's due to an alteration in the calendar because uh, I can't remember the exact date that uh, that most of Europe adopted the Gregorian calendar. The Julian calendar lays down that, uh, you know that the Earth doesn't take 365 days to orbit the sun, don't you? It takes about 365 point, about 365 and a quarter days. So the Julian calendar gives you an extra day every four years. Okay? But even that doesn't work right. That actually made the days go a little bit longer. So eventually you've got the Gregorian calendar, which has a number of changes. But one of the main changes, that the year at the beginning of the century is only a leap year if it's divisible by 400. Therefore, the year 2000 was a leap year, but the year 1900 was not a leap year. Okay? Well, here's the difference. I'm afraid that England was a little bit backward on this. England actually refused to adopt the Gregorian calendar when it came in, and they only adopted the Gregorian calendar many years later, by which time there were another thir- there were another 32 days on the calendar, which means that October the 23rd was actually September the 21st. Are you following me? Why is that important? September the 21st is the is the fall equinox, the autumnal or fall equinox. And most societies in the world use that as their New Year's Day, not January the 1st. And so it makes sense, because that's certainly what the Hebrews would have done, that the world would have begun on September the 21st at the sunset beforehand. Okay? That's a bit of a bunny trail, but that's just to defend Archbishop Usher against those people who don't like him. Okay. Well, when does the day mean, when does the word day mean day? Because this morning I went through those eight, I went through the 6,000 years, but you may have been saying, well, hold on a minute. You didn't justify that those days were really days. And a couple of people did ask me about that uh, uh, over lunch and earlier. So I'm going to justify why the days are days and why it's important not to, con- not to compromise on that. Well, the word day, which in Hebrew is yom, is used 2,301 times in the Old Testament. Why have I only used the Old Testament? Because I'm using the Hebrew word yom. Why don't we get the Hebrew word yom in the New Testament? Just a quick test to see if you know. Because the New Testament was written in Greek, that's right. So when people say a day with the Lord's like a thousand years, and they're quoting uh, a word used in Second Peter 3, that was actually in Greek. And you can't, although you can use the New Testament as a commentary on the Old Testament, and you should, you can't use the New Testament as a lexicon or dictionary on the Old Testament. That doesn't work. It's different languages, okay? Um, the word yom is the word day, and it's 2,301 times in the Old Testament, but the only place where anyone has any problem with what it means is in Genesis chapter 1. There is nowhere else in the entire Old Testament where anyone has a problem. And yet the word yom means several things. It can mean a 24-hour day. It can mean the, the hours of daylight, and it can mean a period, a, a sort of vague period of time. 
Just like you might say, in my father's day, it took six days to drive across the United States during the day. In that sentence, I've used the word day in three different ways. But you know which one I meant in every case, don't you? You don't need a dictionary. You don't need to question me. So which day means which? In my father's day, that's a period of time that's vague. Because I'm not telling you exactly what year that was. I'm saying in my father's day. It took six days to drive across the United States. That's six 24-hour periods, isn't it? During the day, that's during the hours of daylight. So I've used the word in three different ways, yet you have got no problem whatsoever in understanding which is which. And nobody has any problem in the Bible understanding which use of the word day is which, except in Genesis 1. And it's not that they don't have any problem understanding it, it's that they have a problem accepting it. And that's a different thing. It's the context that tells you which is which. So let's have a look at context. Since we're questioning Genesis 1, let's just rip that out of our Bibles, metaphorically speaking. This is a thought experiment. Don't really tear your Bibles, okay? But just pretend that the Old Testament begins with Genesis 2 and ends with Malachi 4. In that Old Testament, in that expurgated Old Testament, the word day occurs with a number 410 times. In every single one of those 410 occasions, without any exception whatsoever, it always means a 24-hour day, if there is a number with the word day. Why not the same in Genesis 1? Secondly, the word evening and the word morning are put together without the word day 38 times. Every time they appear together in all 38 cases outside Genesis 1, they always mean an, a, a, an ordinary 24-hour day. The word evening or the word morning occur with the word day 23 times. In every case, every one of those 23 cases, without exception, they always mean an ordinary 24-hour day. And a fourth piece of context is that the word day appears with the word night 52 times from Genesis 2 to Malachi 4. And in every single one of those cases, without exception, they always mean a 24-hour day. So you might say, hold on a minute then. What could God possibly have done if he wanted to assure you that the days of Genesis 1 were real 24-hour days? Well, maybe he could have used the words night, evening, morning, and a number. And in case you didn't get it first time, maybe he could have repeated evening, morning, and a number. And in case you're a little bit slower on the uptake, maybe he could have used the words evening, morning, and number again. Or maybe if you're really struggling with that, evening, morning, and number again. Or, to use an educational term, if you're really challenged on this subject, maybe you could have used the word evening, morning, and number again. Or, when I was a high school teacher, to use the educational word used in the staff room, if you're really thick, he could have used the words evening, morning, and number again. I ask you, what more could God have done to emphasize to you that the days of Genesis 1 were real 24-hour days? But, 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 hold on, Paul, a day with the Lord's like a thousand years. <laughs> a day with the Lord is like a thousand years. It's true, it's in Scripture. 
Usually, if people say that to me, I say, where's that in Scripture? Because I know where it is in Scripture. It's in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But they may not know. And they usually can't find. I'm sure it says it somewhere. Yeah, it does. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day, which just cancels it out again. They forget that bit. And what does that mean, anyway? Is it to do with creation? No, it's not to do with creation. It's got nothing to do with creation. It's got nothing to do with creation. It's the question being asked is, why, why, why has Jesus not returned yet? Jesus said he's coming back soon. Why has he not returned yet? Why? Why has the day of the Lord not happened yet? Because a day with the Lord's like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. It's not the answer to the question of how long the days of creation were. It's the answer to the question of why Jesus hasn't returned yet. It's got nothing to do with creation. When it comes to creation, we've got the days of creation. And if you want to apply that to other things in the Bible to which it doesn't apply, think about it. How long was Jonah in the belly of the big fish? He was in there three days, but a day with the Lord's like a thousand years. How long did Joshua march the people of Israel around Jericho? Seven days, is that right? A day with the Lord's like a thousand years. Poor old Joshua. (laughs) The real killer is when I try and explain to them about what happens in Numbers chapter 7. Numbers chapter 7, you are all, I know you're all very familiar with Numbers chapter 7. I won't insult you by telling you about Numbers chapter 7. I know it's a part of the Bible that you are very, very familiar with. Okay? Uh, just in case there's anyone who's not quite clued in at the moment about Numbers chapter 7. Numbers chapter 7 is that bit where Moses is collecting the gifts for the tabernacle and God has told Moses to sit down while the tribes of Israel bring their gifts for the tabernacle. And for some reason, God tells them to do it one day at a time. Okay, I know you all knew that already, okay, but I thought, you know, just, just for completeness, in case the talk is being recorded, to give to people who have less Bible knowledge, who would mention that. Okay. <laughs> Do you know, when I was at school, we had to have a Bible. That's a good thing, isn't it? We had to have a Bible at school. We had to buy our own Bible. Here's the bad thing. It was a copy of the New English Bible. That's not the same as the New English translation, which isn't actually too bad, actually. But the New English Bible before then was pretty poor. Not only that, but the school edition had two columns per page of all the text until you came to Leviticus and Numbers. And because they're so boring, it went to smaller type with three columns per page. So you immediately looked at it and thought, I can't read that. Let's just skip through that. Because they're less inspired. They're more boring. You know, it's all these laws and things. They're not less inspired. You've got to read them. It's tough. I'm not pretending that it's easy to read through Numbers, but I'm going to give you a short lesson on this part of Numbers for the moment. Verse 12, it says, And the one who offered his offering on the first day, can you see why I've given you this now? Was Nashon, the son of Aminadab of the tribe of Judah. Verse 18, a bit further on, on the second day, it was the tribe of Issachar. Verse 24, on the third day, it was the tribe of Zebulun. Are you beginning to get the idea? Can you see where I'm going with this? You look every six verses and you get the same thing. Oh, my. Poor, poor Moses. A day with the Lord is like a thousand years. Moses was sat there waiting for 12,000 years. No wonder he needed two people to hold his arms up. (laughs) 
Nobody in the right mind. You, you might not be familiar with Numbers 7, seriously, and I'm not very familiar with it. But nobody in the right mind is going to read that and say it's 12,000 years or 12 long ages even, are they? No one. Why? Because the context is clear. It's 12 days. Not only that, but this was written by the same person who wrote Genesis 1, Moses. And it's written with the same grammar as Genesis 1 was written. It's the same word order. So if you interpret this as 12 literal 24-hour days, which everyone in their right mind is going to do, then if you are consistent, you will have to interpret Genesis 1 as six literal 24-hour days. On the other hand, if you want to interpret Genesis 1 as as six long ages, then you are going to have to be put into the ridiculous position of interpreting that as 12 long ages. And if you want to interpret that as 12 literal days and Genesis 1 as 6 long ages, then I'm telling you, you are not being consistent. You have misinterpreted it hermeneutically. You've got it wrong. Yes, there are parts of the Bible that are poetic. Do you know why they can choose the poetry and that most modern versions show poetry parts of the Bible in a different typeface? You know how they know to do that? Because the word order in Hebrew is different. You don't need to know much. I know very little Hebrew. I have to use uh, computer programs and listen to what other people have said. You know, but I've read through um, Genesis and Change by uh, Dr. Kenneth Gentry, which is a very good introduction to the Hebrew structure. It's a different word order he maintains. And that's how they know to put the poetry there. Have you noticed that Genesis 1 is not arranged like that because it is not poetry. The word order is historical narrative, just like it is in Numbers 7. And therefore, you've got to interpret them the same way. Have I made that point clear? Okay, it's a very, very important point. You see, then some people have compromised positions because they cannot accept that the six days of Genesis were six days. Now, some people say, well, those six days must be six days, so we better find somewhere else to put the thousand years. And that's a theory called the gap theory, where they make a a gap and they put thousands or even millions of years into a gap. Have you come across this? In 2000 and 2005, I went to a conference organized by Answers in Genesis at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. And uh, the the Dr. Jerry Falwell, not the current Dr. Jerry Falwell, his father actually had the grace to say when when he stood up that when he started his teaching ministry, he taught the gap theory because that was the only game in town as far as he knew at the time. And he, he gave his testimony that over the years, people like Henry Morris and Ken Ham and others had shown him that there cannot be a gap. And he had come to be a literal six-day creationist. And for someone of his caliber, having preached on that for so long, preached what he said was an error for so long, to admit that it was an error and to change his teaching ministry on that basis, whatever else you think about him, whatever other areas you think he may have had, I think that was a very commendable thing to be able to do. So he believes, uh, uh, so the gap theory is the idea that between Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 1, and Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, there's a gap. Another theory is called progressive creation. This is the idea of the astronomer Dr. Hugh Ross, that maybe each day is actually a long age, and uh, that they don't even have to occur in the same order as they are in Genesis 1. Uh, theistic evolution is the idea that the Essential truth behind Genesis 1 is true, but the science is actually the theory of evolution. 
It's very difficult to understand what they mean by the essential truth, but we'll come to that. And allied to that, one method that people use for being theistic evolutionists is what's known as the framework hypothesis, where they stick the whole of Genesis 1 into a framework. These are the compromise positions that they use uh, in order to try and explain things. Allied to all four of those is that if you believe any of the first four, then to be logical, you have to believe in a local flood because any of those things are going to give you long ages in which there is death before Adam came around. And if there was death before Adam came around, you would get fossils. So the fossils were not formed by the flood. That means that the flood could not have been global because most of the fossils were not formed by the flood, so the flood couldn't have been global. It has to be a local flood. So a local flood is an obvious and logical corollary of the first four. And I know there are some people who say, well, we believe one of those first four, but we think the world is uh, the flood was worldwide. But I'm telling you, you can't be consistent. You cannot possibly be logically consistent and hold to a global flood as well as holding one of these four compromise positions. And they are compromises because the Bible gives us six days. So where are we going to put those six days? The first idea with progressive creationists and theistic evolutionists is to spread the millions of years throughout all the six days. The second idea is a gap where between the first and the second verse. The third idea, which is another version of the gap theory, is to have a huge amount of time before the first verse of the Bible, that God creates the world, and then there's a long period of time before he says anything else about uh, beginning the world. That's known as the soft gap theory, and uh, it's becoming quite popular today because it's been uh, taught by people like uh, Dr. John Piper and others. Okay, so what's the gap theory? Let's start with that one. The gap theory is the idea that there's a gap between the first two verses. Now, let me, I'd probably better read those first two verses to you so that we follow that. And if you see that in uh, Scripture, you'll go to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. We read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it says, um, the earth was without form and void. The earth was without form and void. And you have to concentrate on the word was, which I'll just look at in a moment. Okay, during the gap, they believe that Lucifer fell during that gap, that he became sinful. They also believe then that God punished Lucifer by ruining that first world, flooding it all with a flood that's referred to by them as the Luciferian flood. And that's what made all the fossils. And then following that, he recreated the world in six days. Six days of recreation. They, ha- they claim to have backing from Scripture for this. Because they claim that the second verse should be, the earth became without form and void. Instead of saying that the earth was without form and void, they claim that it should say the earth became without form and void. I'll explain that in a minute. They also then cl- uh, uh, compare the phrase without form and void, as used in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, with the only other place in the Bible where you find the same phrase, which is in Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 23, where it does say that God will make the earth without form and void as a punishment. And so you think, well, if it's a punishment in Jeremiah 4.23, why isn't it a punishment in Genesis chapter 2? Why isn't it there as a punishment for Lucifer's sin? Uh, 
The third thing is they say that the earth was replenished in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. Now, if you have a look at Genesis chapter 1 verse 28, let's deal with that last one first. What does it say in your Bibles? I've got the New American Standard Bible in front of me here. It says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth. Has anyone got the ESV with them? English Standard Version. What does it say there, sir? Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, from be fruitful and multiply. Fill. It's the word fill, not replenish. If, has anyone got, let's go for something slightly or different. What about the New International Version? Anyone got that? We'll take you out and stone you later if you do. <laughs> it says the word fill there. I can promise you it says the word fill there. <clears throat> New King James Version, it says the word fill. Anyone got a copy of the Geneva Bible with them? 1599 Geneva Bible. That's before the King James Version. That's got the word fill in it. The Tyndale Bible has the word fill in it. The only Bible that has the word replenish in is the King James Version. The only one. <clears throat> Does that mean the King James translators were wrong? <laughs> There's a hornet's nest. <laughs> Actually, no, it doesn't. Because the word replenish is not a re-word. It doesn't mean re-anything. There has never in the English language been a word plenish. So you can't plenish something again. It's not an, a re-word. It comes from a different root. It comes from the same root as the word replete, which means completely full completely full. In other words, when you say replenish, it means completely full. Now, the word replenish has changed its meaning. So today, if you replenish your food stock, you're going to buy more food to add to what's already there. You're restocking. So it's a reword today, but it wasn't then. There is no word plenish. So in 1611, when the King James Version was translated, it was perfectly correct to put the word replenish, but it doesn't mean do it again. It means fill for the first time ever completely. And they got it right, just as every other version has got it right there. So basically, those people who say it means redo something by looking at the King James Version are not actually in accord with the King James Version translators. I'm sorry. What else have we got? They call God the Ancient of Days. How can God be the Ancient of Days if the earth is young? And that's one of the main reasons why I don't call myself a young earth creationist. Because 6,000 years is ancient, isn't it? It's only young if you compare it to the theory of evolution and millions of years. And as I told you yesterday, and I'll say it again, I do not define myself by what the evolutionists say. I define myself by what scripture says. And therefore, 6,000 years is ancient and God is the ancient of days. Like I told you, if you go to Stonehenge in England, it's got a label on it. This is an ancient monument. It's one of Britain's registered ancient monuments. Well, where do we get this whole business about the uh, the, the gap then? Well, it's, it's down to a misinterpretation of not seeing what the, uh, the Hebrew, uh, little Hebrew mark Vav means. This tiny little mark that you see in the Hebrew, uh, which is... 
I understand it's referred to here as advar disjunctive, but it basically means that what it means in plain English is that the second verse depends on the first verse. Basically, and here's one place I was just sort of being critical of people misunderstanding the King James Version. Let me now commend the King James Version for something, okay, so I can get on the right side of some people. Notice the King James Version says, In the beginning were, uh, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and this, and that. Do you notice that? It's almost like you could miss out the full stops. There's, a, there's an urgency and a panic about it. And this, and that, and that. It's punchy. Actually, some of the other versions miss that, you know, don't give you that impression. The King James Version has got the right impression, if I'm interpreting that right. Because the second verse comes instantly after the first verse. The third verse, instantly after the second verse. They follow from each other. And basically, that's what this is saying, that you cannot have a gap. It's got to follow on. So if you use the King James Version correctly, you wouldn't be a gap theorist. Okay? What about the word higher in uh, Hebrew? The word higher. This is the verb to be. The earth was without, was without form and void. But the gap theorists say it should become the word became. Well, the problem here is people not understanding how to translate from one language to another. And I'm not very good at languages. I've already said to you that I have to use computer programs and I have to use people's uh, uh, opinions who are more knowledgeable on this. But the point is, I'm sure everyone knows that you cannot directly translate one word to another. You know that. There isn't always a direct translation from one language to another. Whatever languages you have ever learned, even closely related languages, you can't translate one word directly to another. And in the same way, the word higher usually means to be, but actually it can mean became. How would you know if it means became? By the context. It only means became if the context requires it. And that's because that's the way that that word works. It, you would normally, the, the, the principle of translation would be that you would usually use the main primary meaning. So if you look in Brown Driver Briggs, for example, which is why I put BDB there, they define higher as fallout, happen, come to pass, or come into being, or become. That's the secondary meaning. You are going to use the first meaning unless there is a reason for using the second meaning. And then you go to the third meaning if you can't use the second meaning. That's how it works. That's why we've got these lexicons like Brown Driver Briggs to help us with this, to help those people like me who don't know Hebrew to understand what we're supposed to be looking at. Well, there is no contextual reason whatsoever for using the second meaning. There's nothing that tells us that it should be the word became, and therefore it is logical to use it as the word be, that the earth was without form and void. Is that okay? Does that make sense? Being Since I don't actually can go through the Hebrew without copying it out from a computer program, that's as good as you're going to get from me, okay? The words tohu and bohu, that's without form and void. They only occurs twice in the Bible. The second place it occurs is in Jeremiah 4.23, where it says, I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void, and the heavens, they had no light. This is a sort of punishment. But the thing is, that if you've only got a couple of uses of the phrase, how are you going to know where to start from? The answer is, you start from the first use, not the second use. For example, supposing... Um, Oh, really, I should have put the next picture first before this picture. Let me go to the second picture and then try and go back to it. Supposing a hockey coach talked about his team having won a great victory, and he says, this was their finest hour. 
Well, that's a quote, isn't it? Winston Churchill said about the British Royal Air Force during the Battle of Britain, when they had seen the German Air Force off, they said this was their finest hour. So to understand that phrase, do we look at what some hockey coach has said in 2020, or do we look at what Winston Churchill said? The answer is we look at what Winston Churchill said, because that's the first use. The other use may be slightly different, but it's related, and we understand it in the context of a hockey team. You see? Now you go back to the use of the phrase uh, bohu and tohu, and we interpret Jeremiah 4 with, relation, with reference to, to Genesis 1 verse 2, not the other way around. Is that okay? You don't interpret Genesis 1 verse 2 by going to Jeremiah 4 first. It's obviously the first use. The second use can be slightly different. It doesn't matter. We start from the first use, and then we interpret the second one with reference to that, not the other way around. Okay, running short of time, so I'd better run on quite quickly. Uh, there is a concept in the gap theory that darkness is evil. And I should mention about Psalm 104, verse 20, where it says, you make darkness and it is night. So God makes darkness. Darkness is not always evil. When God put darkness over Abraham, that wasn't evil. I'm going to miss out the stuff on replenish, and I'm going to move on, because I've already mentioned replenish. But I want to mention about... Um, uh, why people actually believe the gap theory. They believe it because they have started from science. I mentioned to you about James Hutton having invented the millions of years. Well, around the same time as James Hutton, there was a churchman who had been studied a little bit of, bio, of, of geology. This churchman was called Thomas Chalmers. And he, re, he had studied James Hutton's ideas, and he was convinced that that was scientific fact. But, but Thomas Chalmers was a godly man. He was actually the founder of the Free Church of Scotland. And he was a good man. There's a lot of what he had to say that was very good, but he got this wrong because he was convinced that the science had proved millions of years, and therefore he had to fit that into the Bible. And that's why he invented this whole theory, the gap theory, because of that. Now, the Bible says that in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. But in Genesis chapter 1... Before that imaginary gap, it says, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. So you see that the making of the heavens and the earth is part of the six days. Therefore, there cannot be a gap. And that's your short refutation of the gap theory. Have you got that? Some people say there's a gap between where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the rest of uh, Genesis 1, the six days. But the Bible says that in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. So the making of the heavens and the earth is part of the six days, therefore there's no gap. Somebody in Coventry in England, after I'd given a talk like this, came up and said to me, but, you know, there, there, there must be a gap there. I've always been taught there was a gap there. There's got to be a gap there. And so I repeated this to them. And she just looked at me for a little while and said, but there's got to be a gap there because Benny Hinn says there is. Progressive creation believes that there must be ages. Why? Because they say that in day one, there was a day, but you can't have a day because God didn't make the sun until day four. Have you heard that? The sun is what gives us the light, so there couldn't have actually been any days until day four. So the, for at least the first three days were not real days. That's not true. Of course you can have light without the sun. 
Let me show you how. There must have been days before the sun was created. All you need to have a day is for the earth to rotate and for light to shine in one direction. That's all you need. The fact that that light doesn't come from a source is irrelevant. God can make light move. Light basically is a waveform in the electromagnetic field. There's an electromagnetic field in the universe. When it waves, that's light. It's a transfer of energy through the electromagnetic field. It's like a lot of springs through space and you get them moving. That's what light is. So God could do that, couldn't he? Just like God can calm the waters, like God could, uh, God can make anything. God can make light come from one direction. And then on day four, he made it so that there was a point source for that light called the sun. And I, why he did that? I don't know why he did that, but I suspect it's probably to try and uh, discourage people from worshipping the sun. You remember, he's emphasizing by making sure there's a delay till he makes the sun, that the sun is a created thing, so don't worship it. Because there's a logic to other societies that don't really understand God. There's a logic to them worshipping the sun, isn't there? Because after all, all our, all our heat and all our energy and all our sustenance comes from the sun. There's a logic, but it's not there. It's not right because God has, uh, has made it clear. So it's perfectly possible to have days without the sun. Unfortunately, at the moment, with my computer getting a little warm, it appears to be overheating every time I show a short video clip, which is going to be a nuisance, and it's crashed again. So at least that will give me the opportunity to very quickly come to um, uh, skip to uh, the end of this, because we need to do so. We need to make sure that we finish this uh, at the right time. Let's discard that, and let's bring this open. Okay. So we've looked at... Uh, uh, it, it isn't the case that you have to disbelieve the days of creation because God made the sun on the fourth day. That doesn't make sense. God said he made uh, light on day one. He is perfectly capable of making light go in one direction without there being a point source for it. But you see, there's a little bit more to that. A lot of people don't realize that if you believe the gap theory, and Hugh Ross, who developed progressive creation, he thinks that the, that the Big Bang is proven. But you see, what a lot of people don't realize is that the Big Bang has an eschatology attached to it. They believe that everything started in a Big Bang and it's going to last billions of years and gradually all the molecules in the universe are slowing down slowing down and eventually there will be what's called a heat death where everything freezes and dies. And that's all you've got to look forward to in the future. One day the universe will die. Praise God, that's not true. Praise God, that's not true. There, there, there is a big bang mentioned in scripture, but it's not happened yet. God made the world in six days. It lasts for thousands of years, but one day God will end everything in a heat destruction. And this doesn't talk about any of the possible theories of eschatology there. I'm just missing those out. But Jesus returns bodily and there'll be a new heavens and a new earth that go on for eternity. That's the biblical model. Even if we have disagreements over where or if there's a millennium and exact how long it is and uh, tribulation and so on. This is stuff that all biblical scholars can agree with, that there is going to be a new heavens and a new earth for eternity. So praise God, that's your future. It's a future of hope and of joy. The Big Bang Theory is a pretty bleak sort of future for us. Theistic evolution says that basically the Bible and evolution is true. Couldn't God have created through evolution? Well, actually, yes, God could have created through evolution. Let's face it, God could go and do everything. But I choose to believe what God said he did, not what he could have done. 
God could have caused the entire universe to come out of a giant pink bunny if he wanted to, but he told us exactly how he made the earth, how he made it all in six days. And I'm going to accept that. But shouldn't we have to establish, uh, accept established scientific fact? Well, I've shown you that it's not established scientific fact. Evolution is not established scientific fact. And yet too many people have said it is. Charles Hodge said the church has been forced more than once to alter her interpretation of the Bible to accommodate the discoveries of science. But this has been done without doing any violence to the scriptures or in any degree impairing their authority. I'm sorry, but Charles Hodge is wrong. We'll honor him on lots of other things. But these scholars like Charles Hodge and B.B. Warfield did huge damage to the church by uh, putting ideas of evolution into Genesis and not standing firm against that. They opened the door to all the liberalism that has come since then. But theistic evolution is wrong for other reasons. And it's notable that, uh, that Dennis Alexander, who is a theistic evolutionist from Britain and one of the elders of uh, probably the largest evangelical church in Britain, Eden Baptist Church in Cambridge, says that today's scientists who are believers do not bring God into their daily scientific discourse for very good reasons. Such a strategy demeans God in seeming to make him just one more explanatory device amongst a whole array of competing material explanations. He was using this to say that he believes that people shouldn't mention God in their scientific papers. It's interesting that uh, Michael Faraday wouldn't have agreed with him. Michael Faraday, who did so much pioneering work on electricity, often mentioned God because he was an elder in a Bible-believing church in London. Johannes Kepler said, I was merely thinking God's thoughts after him. Since we astronomers are priests of the highest God in regard to the book of nature, it benefits us to be thoughtful, not of the glory of our minds, but rather above all else of the glory of God, to which I say, Amen. That's true, isn't it? But many people uh, would appeal to scripture. Now, I really have to miss uh, these next few slides out, I'm afraid, because uh, we are so short of time, and I really need to quickly dash to my main point, my main conclusion. Um, I'm just going to very quickly tackle the business about a local flood. Some people believe in a local flood. And they would argue with me and say, well, you've got to believe there's a local flood, because after all, where did all the water from the flood go? Have you heard that argument? Where did the water from the flood go? Shall I show you where the water from the flood went? We're very Western-centric in our views. If you look at the earth from the side of the Pacific Ocean, you'll realize that most of the earth is covered with water. It's 70% covered with water. It's very interesting, by the way, that many scientists today believe that the planet Mars was once completely covered with water. They even have the cheek to call it the Noah Epoch on Mars. But they won't believe that today a planet which is 70% covered with water was once 100% covered with water. But the Bible says that the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth and all the high hills under the heaven were covered. 15 cubits they were covered by. How can you have a flood that's in a local area covered by 15 cubits? And yet all those four compromises that I told you, you can only believe them. They only logically work with a local flood. How can you have a local flood that covers the high mountains? It doesn't make a lot of sense to us. But here's another argument. You see, after the flood, God made a covenant with Noah, and he said that there would never, ever be a flood like the worldwide flood that's just happened. But if the flood was a local flood, if the Genesis flood was a local flood, have there ever been any local floods since then? Yes. 
And if therefore the flood of Noah's time was a local flood, then God has not kept his promise, has he? Here's the town of Bowes Castle in uh, Cornwall, flooded, 1984. Here's the town of Workington in the north of England. And what's interesting there is that the BBC News report described that flood as a flood of biblical proportions. I heard the same phrase used again in 2014 in Pensacola, Florida, when I happened to be living there, and Pensacola was hit by floods, where the New York Times described it as a flood of biblical proportions. Okay, try telling the man who owns these car, this car here that God has kept his promise, or people entrapped in Burger King, God has kept his promises never to send another local flood. What about uh, that scene? God has never sent another local flood. These are all scenes from the uh, floods in uh, 2014 in Pensacola. There's downtown Pensacola in 2014. Fascinating, isn't that? However, that was not a biblical flood because the biblical worldwide flood covered the whole earth. God didn't promise not to send disasters, and he has sent disasters. He has sent many, many disasters. But the point is that there has only been a biblical flood once, and he has kept his promise. He has kept his promise not to send another biblical flood. So I'm just going to finish this talk with uh, talking about compromise in terms of time scale. You see, the theory of evolution is based on this. Supposing you take the millions of years of evolution and you contract them down by scale to a 24-hour day, the cosmos begins on day zero. But human beings evolving two million years ago are a recent thing at the end of creation. Here's the thing. Jesus said that Adam was from the beginning of creation. That's what Jesus said about Adam. He's from the beginning of creation. And he talked about the pro- about Abel being from the foundation of the world. But if evolution is true, then Jesus was wrong. On the other hand, if we take the 6,000 years of the Bible and contract that down to a 24-hour time scale, we find that the cosmos is at the beginning. Human beings were more or less at the beginning. Adam was created 35 hundredths of a second after midnight. Abel, 42 seconds after midnight, that fits with the words of Jesus. The top version does not. So once again, I have to come to you and say, are you going to believe the words of Jesus or not? You may think that you that we should only talk about Jesus, that uh, what I'm telling you about Genesis is not relevant to it. I'm saying that it's founded on it. And if you don't accept uh, the truth of Genesis, then you're making Jesus out to be a liar. Remember what I reported to you from Martin Luther, how he said that if you can't understand how all this could have been done in six days, grant the Holy Spirit the honor of being more learned than you are. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.